Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey guys, I have a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Proof, the investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here is releasing its highly anticipated second season where they investigate the murder of 18-year-old Renee Ramos. The first season, which if you haven't listened to yet, you totally should, saw the release of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend, Brian Bowling. And thanks to evidence unearthed by proof, on December 8th, 2022, both Daryl Lee Clark and Kane Joshua Story were finally freed after 25 years behind bars. With that same investigative drive, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, and this time, they are on the streets of Manteca, California, to find out who really killed Renee Ramos. In proof, Murder at the Warehouse, you hear how, on June 5th, 2000, Renee's body was found buried beneath a pile of debris inside a new Home Depot building, and how, despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, her boyfriend, 18-year-old Jake Silva, and 33-year-old Ty Lopez, were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... Weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. A lot of the serial killers we talk about have some form of sick and depraved mindset. Some are molded that way by a horrible childhood or a tragic event. Others are born that way and suffer from an illness that takes over their lives. On May 23rd, 1950, a man was born who, from the beginning, suffered from a mental illness that, by the time he was a teenager, had completely consumed his life. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Richard Trenton Chase, born May 23rd, 1950, and raised in Sacramento, California, started to exhibit evidence of all three of the McDonald triad pretty early on in his life. And though some think that this is an archaic theory and impossible to make a diagnosis off of, if you've been listening to true crime stories for long enough, you know that it has some merit. This, coupled with his heavy drug abuse during his adolescence and signs of a deeper mental illness, made for a difficult childhood, made only worse by his father's strict and abusive style of parenting. As Richard grew older, his mental health deteriorated consistently, and things like arson, bedwetting, and cruelty towards animals became much more frequent. In high school, Richard started to have some serious relationships with girls, most of whom ended the relationship due to his inability to achieve and maintain an erection. So he consulted with a psychiatrist, who explained that the root of all his problems was either repressed anger or mental illness. 
Unfortunately, Richard did nothing to further treat his diagnosis. It was later determined that Richard had an aversion to conventional sex and would only achieve gratification through violence or necrophilia. His problems only got worse when his father kicked him out of the family home, meaning he was left to his own devices and with no supervision or moral compass. He began abusing psychotropic drugs, which only exasperated the symptoms of his illness, eventually developing hypochondria and the belief that his heart occasionally stopped beating or that someone had somehow stolen his pulmonary artery. He did things like hold oranges to his head to absorb the vitamin C via diffusion and would shave his head so he could watch his cranial bones, which he believed had become separated and were floating around in his head. He started catching, killing, disemboweling, and eating small animals he saw running near his apartment and would mix up their raw organs with soda so he could drink what he believed was the only concoction keeping his heart from shrinking. Eventually, at the age of 25, Richard got diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and, after going to the hospital for injecting rabbit blood into his veins, was finally institutionalized as a precaution for both his safety and the safety of others. Nicknamed Dracula inside of that facility, Richard would break the necks of two birds he caught through his window and drink their blood as well as extract blood from therapy dogs with stolen syringes believing both would replenish his own blood supply as he thought his blood was turning into powder inside of his veins. Despite all of this and the litany of treatments, Richard was deemed no longer a danger to himself in 1996 and released back into his mother's custody. Now, there are two versions of what happened next, both with the same terrible outcome. One version states that, for whatever reason, Richard's mother weaned him off the medication that seemed to be working and got him into an apartment of his own, living with a few roommates who, after he persisted with his unusual behavior, left him to live on his own. The other version claims that, with nothing legally binding him to his mother and believing that she was poisoning him, Richard left on his own accord and moved into the apartment with men he called friends. The result was the same, though. Richard on his own yet again and completely unmedicated and untreated. In mid-1977, Richard was stopped and arrested on a reservation in Pyramid Lake, Nevada, after being found smeared with blood and with a bucket of blood in the back of his truck. The blood was found to be from a cow, so he was let go yet again, slipping through the cracks of the system that could have helped him and protected others. He became fascinated with firearms, practiced shooting obsessively, and was completely consumed with information on the Hillside Stranglers, believing the unknown Strangler was, like himself, a victim of the Nazi UFO conspiracy. He continued capturing, torturing, and killing and consuming the blood of rabbits, dogs, and cats, and because this was really all he consumed, he dropped down to a meager 145 pounds. On one occasion, he rang the doorbell of his mother's home and greeted her by thrusting a dead cat in her face. He then threw it down on the ground, ripped open the stomach with his bare hands, and started to smear the blood all over his face while screaming. She did not report this incident and simply took him inside to clean him up. He wasn't getting any better. In fact, things only seemed to be escalating. And finally, in December of 1977, the delusion became too much and Richard felt the need to act. 
On December 29th, 1977, alone and frustrated because his mother didn't let him come home for Christmas, Richard went driving around and found 51-year-old Ambrose Griffin helping his wife bring in groceries. While passing the stranger, Richard pulled out a 22 caliber pistol and shot him in the chest. Two weeks later, he attempted to enter a woman's home, but because all of her doors were locked, he simply walked away, later saying that he took locked doors as a sign that he was not welcome. But if any of the doors were unlocked, he saw it as an invitation to come inside and do as he saw fit, once catching and chasing off a couple who had just returned home, stealing some of their belongings and urinating and defecating in their infant's bed and clothing. When they returned, Richard was still inside of their home. He and the husband got into an altercation, but Richard was able to escape. Between these two break-in attempts, Richard ran into an old schoolmate named Nancy Holden while wandering around. He attempted to get a ride from her, but troubled by his gaunt appearance, she refused. This small, seemingly innocuous event would later become his downfall. On January 11th, 1978, he asked his neighbor for a cigarette, forcibly restraining her until she handed him the entire pack. A few weeks later, on January 23rd, 1978, Richard entered the home of a pregnant Teresa Wallen through her unlocked front door. He shot the unsuspecting woman three times before stabbing her with a butcher knife while having sexual intercourse with her body, cutting out her organs and drinking her blood using a yogurt container as a cup. Before he left, he stuffed dog feces he found in her yard down her throat. Just four days after Teresa's murder, Richard found the home of 38-year-old Evelyn Maroth, unlocked and accepted his imaginary invitation. Inside were her six-year-old son, Jason, her 22-month-old David Ferreira, and friend, Dan Meredith. Dan was murdered in the hallway, shot in the head by Richard Chase, who then stole his keys so he could make his getaway. But before doing so, killed Jason and his mother, stabbing and disemboweling Evelyn, attempting to remove her eyes before sodomizing her corpse and drinking her blood. He was then forced to take off in Dan's stolen car with her nephew, who at that point had been killed inside of the home after a visitor knocked on the door. David's decapitated body was found four months later behind a local church. Thankfully, because his getaway was so quick, Richard left a perfect shoe imprint behind in Evelyn's blood, a print that they would later compare to a pair of Richard's shoes once they caught up to him. But before that happened, FBI agents Russ Vorpagel and Robert Ressler were called to investigate and created a profile. They said that the killer would be tall, malnourished, a loner, physically filthy, and would, most importantly, continue to kill. The profile was released, and five days after the mass murder, Nancy Holden called into police saying she knew exactly who their killer was. Her old schoolmate, the one she randomly ran into less than a month before, Richard Chase. A quick background check gave them all the information they needed, and they set out to arrest Richard. When the police tracked him down, they found that his apartment walls, floors, ceiling, refrigerator, and all of his eating and drinking utensils were soaked in blood. Inside the refrigerator was a number of animal parts, and in a Tupperware container were human brains. Brains that belonged to David Ferreira. There was no doubt that they had just found the vampire of Sacramento. 
1979, Richard stood trial for six counts of murder. And in order to avoid the death penalty, his defense tried to use the insanity defense to get his charge dropped to second-degree murder. On May 8th, 1979, Richard Chase was found guilty of all six counts of first-degree murder, rejecting the insanity plea and sentenced him to die in the gas chamber, a day that would never come. That's because on December 26th, 1980, Richard was found dead inside of his cell. An autopsy would later show that he had overdosed on his antidepressants, which he had been hoarding over several weeks. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on May 24th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.